Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Our podcast is dedicated to therapists, social workers, counselors, and psychologists working with clients from an attachment-based perspective. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading attachment theory researchers and clinicians in the field. Today, Karen welcomes Dr. Robert Marvin for part one of their discussion on research and clinical applications of attachment theory. I am so, so excited. I can hardly contain myself about today's guest. He is going to be very familiar to many of you. He is a giant in the field of attachment research and clinical application as well. Sometimes we find that folks who do research have not been as involved in clinical application of attachment theory but my guest today has done both. So I'm gonna give you a bit of background information before he joins us today. My guest today is Dr. Robert Marvin. Dr. Marvin was an undergraduate student and research associate with Mary D. Ainsworth at the John Hopkins University. Okay, like if I stopped the bio right there, that would be so like unbelievably impressing and exciting. Uh, Just that in and of itself that this man actually worked with Mary Ainsworth. But anyway, let me continue. He received his PhD in developmental and clinical psychology from the University of Chicago in 1972. After completing a postdoctoral fellowship at the Institute of Child Development at the University of Minnesota, he began teaching at the University of Virginia, where he's currently Professor Emeritus in the School of Medicine and Research Professor in the Department of Psychology. He's also the Director of the Mary D. Ainsworth Child Parent Attachment Clinic in Charlottesville, Virginia. Throughout his career, Bob has been active in basic and clinical attachment research and in intervening with families who have children with chronic medical conditions and or histories of disrupted early relationships. This work has led him to focus increasingly on developing clinical tools for assessing and intervening with families of foster and adopted children and with families experiencing divorce or other types of parental separation. What I want to share next is what uh, Dr. Marvin may be known to some of you for, and that is uh, his work with Circle of Security. From 1998 to 2006, Bob was the principal investigator on federally funded projects that developed and tested the Circle of Security version of attachment theory and the Circle of Security Intervention Protocol. Currently, he is especially active in implementing implementing, excuse me, variations of this circle of security framework in developing community-based partnerships among professionals working with families and at-risk children. These include children at risk of removal from foster and adoptive families, children of divorce, families who have had children with chronic medical conditions, and parent-child relationship challenges related to trauma. Dr. Marvin travels extensively to train professionals in implementing science-based practices and in integrating developmental psychology, clinical psychology, and family systems work. So it is going to be a real treat for us today to talk with Dr. Marvin, and he'll be coming right up. 
experienced and proven strategies in the field of behavioral health straight from the experts at the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Josh Carlson for Attachment Theory in Action. This training will feature practical interventions to support your attachment-based clinical practice. Coming to a city near you, visit tkcchaddock.org to learn more. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. And today I have with me for our podcast, uh, Dr. Bob Marvin. And so, Dr. Marvin, thank you so much for joining me here today. Sure. Very happy to. Yes. Well, your name is going to be very familiar with a lot of our listeners to us. You're kind of a rock star. Oh, so they're going to know who you are. But I thought that it would be great if you could give a little bit of your story, like how you came to this work, how you got started, how you ended up actually working with Mary Ainsworth, which yeah. kind of like blows everybody's minds. That Mine too, still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so how did how did this all happen? Okay. Long story, and try to make it relatively short. Um, so I, I, I went to, I did my undergraduate work. I started undergraduate work at the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore when I was like 18. Um, and this was back in 1962, a long time ago. Um, I started out as a physics major. Oh, my, wow. dad, okay. my dad was a physicist, so... Yeah, I did the usual, the classic thing of following in his footsteps and realized after just one semester, um, this is not what I want to do. This is, this is all math. It's all abstract math. I, I really enjoyed the hands-on part of physics in high school, um, and I just did not, I didn't want to do this. So, of course, I, I dropped out of being a physics major and started searching around for another major and felt terribly, terribly lost. Um, and one of the things I did in, in, in shopping around and taking different courses is I, I saw a course on child development. I've always, I've been, I'm from a big family, five, there were five of us kids. Yeah. Um, I'd always loved children, um, loved babies. Um, and um, so I thought, hmm, this might be interesting. Um, and it turned out to be um, taught by this woman who, whose name I found out was Mary Ainsworth. And at that point, um, it was, I was like, well, who's that? I had no, I'd never heard of her before. You're just registering for a course that I'm, looks interesting. I'm just registering for a course, right. <laughs> so I, I, I started this course and from the first lecture, was absolutely blown away. This woman, um, who at that time was about 50, um, and, and she was at the same time kind of very British. She's, she's Canadian, or she was Canadian, but she was um, also quite British, um, kind of formal, but at the same time so personable. And it was just a fascinating, combination for me. So I took that course um, and it, it was a course that focused on um, psychodynamic theory of development, like um, psychoanalytic theory, mm -hmm. and Piaget and John Bowlby, because Mary had already started working with John Bowlby. This was, this was in 1964, three or four, something like that. 
Um, and she had already been working with John. Um, and I was totally, totally fascinated. Um, she spent a lot of time on the theory of evolution, which of course Bowlby did as well. Yes. That blew my mind. Um, I've always seen myself since then as what we call a human ethologist, uh, which is like Conrad Lorenz's work and, and John Bowlby. Um, so I took that course and then I took every course I could take from her. I just absolutely fell in love with her as a professor and in the material. Um, and at Hopkins, which was very small at that time, I mean, there were only 1,300 undergraduates in the whole university. Um, there was a long practice of, of undergraduates working with faculty members on their research projects. So I went to Mary and to Professor Ainsworth at that time. Yes. Professor Ainsworth and um, asked her if she had any space, which I, I would love to work with her. And she said, no, she didn't have anything. I'd come back some other time, but no, at this point, I have nothing. So I was crestfallen, of course. Yes. But I went back at the beginning of the next semester and asked her again, and she said, nope, still nothing. And I felt crestfallen yet again. And, but I, I was, I was each time I went to see her and was turned down and it was, I mean, she, it was not like she didn't want me to be there, but she just didn't have a, a role for me. Yes. Um, and the third time I went, I said, um, Dr. Ainsworth, I am not taking no for an answer. I am going to work with you. I am going to work with you. What can I do? I love it. And she giggled. And she said, well, interesting, because by this time, she knew me from class, because our classes were, you know, they'd be 8 to 12 or 13 uh -huh. people in a seminar. Um, and so, so she's she, like, here's Bob again, this persistent guy. When is he, he going to stop bugging me? <laughs> um, and um, and uh, she said, well, it just so happens that um, I actually have something that you could do, and I have a grant, and I could even pay you. To do to do this work how would you like to be part of a project where you would go out into the homes of of these um, families who have just had a baby and for a year uh, go into their home and do naturalistic observations of the mother and baby at home oh wow true true science you uh, know, you uh -huh, don't see uh -huh. like that anymore right so, ah, so, wow. and she, of course, had been trained as a clinician, but she was also trained as a, a, a serious scientist. She's one of the best scientists I ever met. Um, um, and of course, I, so I, 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 I really kind of identified with her and um, I've gone the same, my life, my professional path has been um, pretty much exactly the same as hers. So I said, well, yeah, of course. <laughs> so so um, she said, okay. And, she, and so I, I started working with her and she trained me in how to do these naturalistic observations. And these were not just informal observations. I mean, they, they were, I mean, we went into the homes. It was in a sense, very clinical. Um, um, it was not highly controlled. But what she did was the same thing that the, um, that the ethologists and the sociobiologists did, which is develop observational techniques and develop you know, specific technical strategies for doing that kind of work 
that allow you at the same time to collect uh, very, very sophisticated data um, while at the same time you're interacting with and developing a relationship with this mom. And we, yes. so we, we fought, we followed these kids, these moms and kids for the whole first year of the baby's life. Every two weeks, um, eventually it became every three weeks, but um, basically every two weeks for like anywhere from three, four hours a time, we go to the home. Oh my gosh. All these incredible notes, go back to the lab, dictate the notes, expand on them. And she taught us a sort of a shorthand um, way of taking notes. Um, uh, and then and then they were transcribed by our, um, our wonderful um, lab manager and secretary and um, this, this little old lady that all of us really, really loved. Um, and then at the end of the year, we would do strange situations. Okay. With, with all of these kids and their moms. And so actually the first thing I did was start working on doing strange situations for the first wave. In other words, the first part of the sample of, of parents and kids. And when I got started, it was actually at the point where she was starting to do the strange situations. So the first thing I did was I got involved in running strange situations. And you, um, yes. I'm, I'm, should, should I assume that the audience is aware of what? Yes, yes, yes. All right. Um, and um, at that time, we had no videotapes. Uh, uh, there was there was videotape. The first time we had videotape that we could use um, was about 1967 or six. Yeah, about wow. 1967. Um, and she had a fascinating way that she got around the problem of no videotape. Um, but I was, my job was to take, I had a Bolex eight millimeter camera and um, I was taking um, moving picture, movie pictures through this little window in the wall. Oh my goodness. Um, and in fact, the reason that um, the, the, the final reason that the strange situation consists of three minute episodes is because the little role of Bolex film only lasted about three minutes. So I would, I would need time to change. Yes. You know, take the old video, I mean, the old um, film out and put the new one in, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, and then as soon as we finished collecting the strange situations on that first wave, then I started going out into the homes and um, with Mary and with, there were two other people who were also home visitors. Um, and we went out and collected all this data and then did strange situations on the second group. Uh-huh. Um, uh, and I, I just knew this. I mean, I just absolutely loved it. I was, I was doing work that was like, for me, it was play. And yeah. I, almost, I almost felt guilty because I was just having so much fun. And whereas I was struggling so much to get decent grades um, <laughs> as a physics major with all this, the, her, her version of science and, and all this work, it was like sliding downhill. It, it was so easy for me. And my, my grades went from a low C average to sort of straight A's and you know, yeah. it was just, amazing and then so I, I, I um, when I when I got my degree with her um, 
Um, she and I, by that time, were pretty close friends. She now, no this show. is still your bachelor's degree, or you you went? Yeah, this is still this is before I went to graduate school. I just can't even imagine. It's just so exciting. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and and Mary didn't have any of her own children, um, but she she um, treated a lot of her students as we we became her children in a sense so and this is uh, um, this was an example of learning at the foot of the master literally so she and I she would have me out to her house and I would go out there about five o'clock five thirty in the afternoon and she loved her she loved her bourbon and she loved her cigarettes and at that time I was a cigarette smoker so we sat around I, I'm no longer. We sat around drinking bourbon, having and smoking cigarettes, um, and um, she would make dinner. And the whole time we were doing that, we would be talking attachment. And so, and this went on for um, over two years. Wow. Uh, where I was doing, I was going to her home like once a week. So we, we became, of course, very close. Um, I then went on to graduate school, and um, here, here I, I, I start talking. I, I sort of identify the initial origins of the circle of security with this, and that is she. She was interested primarily in birth to um, in, in infancy, birth to about one year, and I was um, I was going to. I was accepted for graduate school um, at the University of Chicago. And as I was getting close to leaving, oh, I also took a year off um, between my undergraduate and graduate work and did and worked for her full time on this project. Amazing. Um, then I, I applied for graduate school, got accepted to, to Chicago, um, and um, was talking with her, had a long a series of conversations about gosh, what, what am I going to do? What am I going to focus on in graduate school? Um, and she, she was wonderful. She, she uh, helped me think about that. And, um, and I decided that I didn't want to do attachment in the first year of life. I wanted to go on. I was always curious about what what happens after the first year of life? What happens in year two, three, four, five, six, seven? Um, and she thought that was a great idea. So we started talking about um, um, me doing, focusing in my graduate work for my master's and PhD on attachment in the preschool years. And so I left Hopkins and went to Chicago. And that was what that was what I proposed to my dissertation advisor, and he was really interested in that. Um, and um, um, so that's what I did in graduate school, as I focused on um, um, doing research on attachment in preschool children from age about 18 months up to about four or five years old. Uh, and then I did my dissertation on um, attachment in two, three, and four-year-old children. Um, and that, that was the first time anybody had looked at attachment in older kids. By that time, of course, we had videotape. 
Of course, back then, the videos, we had a Sony video machine, a portable video machine that weighed about 30 pounds. The camera weighed about 50, about 10, 15, 12 pounds. And it was connected to this thing you put over a, a big, very heavy reel-to-reel video machine. Um, and so You're I, probably thinking, oh, nowadays you people have it so easy. <laughs> I thought this was, at the time, I thought this is the epitome of high technology. State of the art. And now I look back on it and said, oh my God, how could I have done that? <laughs> um, anyway, so I started off for my master's project. I did um, home visits again, followed by um, strange situations with two, three, and four-year-old kids. And then for my dissertation, um, I just, I really just focused on, um, uh, I didn't go into the homes after that. I did, um, I did strange situations and I also did a lot of work in um, young children's um, developing social cognitive skills. Okay. And John Bowlby in his, one of his last chapters of volume one of his trilogy talks about the goal corrected partnership where children around their fourth birthday develop the ability cognitively and the implication was, and, and there's more and more evidence it's true, that this is due in, in, in large part to some brain development that happens um, that allows them to see things from other people's points of view, mm-hmm. to think about their own point of view and their own goals and plans their mommy's goals and plans or somebody else's goals and goals and plans and to keep them both in mind at the same time mm. so for the listeners who have um who uh took a course in piaget where he talked about conservation of liquid and being able to keep two things in mind at the same time it's the same thing only instead of the liquid it's keep my point of view in mind and my mommy's point of view in mind at the same time and if i can do that then that allows me to have a, to develop a new, an entirely new, a revolutionary new kind of attachment, no longer based just on physical contact and proximity, but also on shared plans, shared attitudes, that sort of thing, which is the beginning of two really important things. It's the beginning of adult human relationships. That's the real basis of adult human relationships. And very appropriate to this era that we're in right now, it is the real development of empathy yes. on the part of children. And even back then, there had been some talk in the clinical literature about children who had grown up in orphanages. Um, some of Rene Spitz's work and um, some of the other work um, that had been done here in the States um, um, about these children who were raised in orphanages um, having a real hard time feeling empathy. And also that people who grow up with um, a, a lot of neglect, um, not so much abuse really as it turns out, but really it's more neglect as in children who are raised in a Russian orphanage or children who um, 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 are, um, who experience profound neglect. And we see that in some of our national leaders at this point, will go unnamed, um, mm-hmm. uh, um, um, that these, these people have um, 
either real deficits in or inability to be empathic toward other people, really empathic. Yes. Okay. Okay. So my dissertation was there. I went on, I left Chicago and after um, a, a, a postdoc at the University of Minnesota at the Institute of Child Development, my first job was here at the University of Virginia in the psych department. And I was doing basic, for about 10 years, I did basic research, uh, continuing this same um, uh, research on normal development of, or development in normally developing children of the goal corrected partnership. Yes. And the kinds of cognitive changes and the kinds of changes that, that happen in the relationship with their moms and dads, their attachment figures. Um, and, and, and the more I did this kind of work, the more I was missing the clinical work that I had done because I got developmental and clinical PhDs at the University of Chicago. And I wanted to go back into clinical work. And so I shifted from the psych department over to the School of Medicine, Department of Pediatrics. Okay. And I took on the job of being the director of a group of pediatric psychologists in the Department of Pediatrics. And we worked with kids with who are special needs kids, children with um, cerebral palsy, epilepsy, um, uh, closed head injuries or traumatic brain injuries, they're now called. Um, um, a whole range of, of conditions that um, turn out to be either endocrinological or neurological or whatever that put them in a special needs category and um, started to work with them. And of course, I couldn't just put all the attachment, my whole history of attachment behind me at that point. So, and as a pediatric psychologist, a lot of the work that I did and that my team did was um, we did evaluations of these children. Um, and I always included, or as often as I could, included an attachment component. Yes. Um, and and um, uh, the circle work, the circle of security, in a sense, that's when it really, that's when the next phase of the circle of security really started to happen. And that was, so here I am, I do this evaluation. By this time, now we're talking 1985, let's say. Um, by that time, there was a lot of research out there in attachment. And I would do an evaluation, and then I would try to explain the results to the parents. And that was such a, that was such a challenge, how to explain it to the parents, because already the field had become pretty highly technical, and there was a huge amount of data out there internationally. How do I do this? And I, I struggled with that so much. Um, and I realized, you know, I, I, one of the things that really needs to be done is to develop, is to, um, develop a what, what has now become known as the user-friendly model of attachment. Yes, and, and, and you know, John, just to interject, you know, John Bowlby writes that his greatest disappointment was how this, a lot of these ideas didn't go from research to clinical practice. And, you know, it's, it's so wonderful that, that, you know, you're, you're percolating this all along, you know, how can this um, really make sense to 
I mean, a lot of therapists can't make sense of what it means for their practice, even with the training they have. So, you know, how it makes sense for parents and intervention. So anyway, I, I just have well, to turn that in. That, yeah, so parents first and foremost. Yes. And also to the pediatricians and the speech therapists. Yes. And the occupational therapists and the neurologists. Yes. Who, and we're working together as this big team. And they're going, what are you talking about? <laughs> yes. So I started working on a, a way of describing attachments and I wanted to do it in a way that was, that was um, understandable to parents, simplified for parents and other professionals, and yet was still had fidelity to the original theory. Yes, because you you know all you you've been exposed to all this. You want it to come across credible, not so oversimplistic that you know this this doesn't even demonstrate an understanding of this right. uh, research. But you held both in your mind, which is just so amazing. And it was it's you mentioned John, um, and of course knowing Mary as well as I did, and I continue to have a close relationship with her, and she was my outside reader for my master's thesis and my doctoral dissertation, and we stayed very close. Um, um, so over the course of time that I've been working with her, of course, I had the opportunity, uh, another mind-blowing opportunity to meet John Bowlby. Um, and get to know him and spend a fair amount of time with him. And he and I had the same conversation you were just reflecting about. Um, he, he was um, distressed that um, this was that the, that this was not getting out to parents and other professionals at a rate he would like to have done. Um, and um, and so when I was started talking to him about that, he got very excited and said, "Oh, do it, Bob! Do it! Do it! Do it!" Um, <laughs> He's cheering so, the biggest, the best cheerleader you could have, <laughs> John yeah, Bowie was, and Mary Ainsworth. You, you better do this now. <laughs> my whole, my whole, I I consider my whole professional career as having been just so incredibly lucky. I just, just things came together and um, in different ways, and it's just been incredibly lucky. Um, you know, I mean, let's, I, I let's know, I've also made my own contribution to it. Of course. And, I'm not yeah. denying that, but, but yes. um, it, it, uh, it's just been. Well, let's take a short pause here okay. as we move into, um, as you're talking more now about circle security and, and, and all the things that were in your mind and how you were thinking about this application, because um, I think that would be a great segue into our, you know, uh, from the history of this and how this all unfolded to the model. So let's just take a short break here and then we'll come back. This concludes part one of the two-part conversation between Karen Doyle Buckwalter and Dr. Robert Marvin on research and clinical applications of attachment theory. Part two will be released on Tuesday, October 15th. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchattock.org, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean for future podcasts. If you enjoyed our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, 
podcast, please log on to tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. Thank you.